Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Maria. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? Uh, thanks for invitation. I'm fine. Uh, despite, uh, let's say, all the news which have, uh, let's say, concerned the entire world, uh, from a Ukrainian perspective, uh, everything is uh, rather predictable. And let's say, we are more certain in, in, what's, in what will come next. So I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> we had uh, one of your former directors of the SBU here earlier this evening. It was a great opportunity to talk to Valentin in that regard and mm-hmm. to discuss, obviously, the internal security and stability. Now, you have a different strategic remit, but nevertheless, I think you, you would probably uh, agree that Andriy Naumov being captured in Serbia with, what, 600,000 euros, $350,000 and a couple of diamonds – it's quite a thing, but it showcases what kind of risks the Ukrainian society, government, and its military and its intelligence service had to deal with and had to um, sort out since this part of the invasion begun. How do you see the security position of Ukraine in that regard? I mean, with Russia suppression, infiltration, its active measures. Uh, first of all, um, I, I think that the their domestic work or homework uh, in order to find and um, counteract all these uh, infiltration agents, uh, let's say, uh, is as active as never before. But at the same time, Ukrainian society has lots of questions to authorities why these groups or these agents were not so actively uh, identified uh, and persecuted, which is very important uh, previously, because uh, a- as we can see from some signs from, for instance, uh, Kherson region or Luhansk region, uh, there were there were some people who who might have been working for the enemy before the large scale invasion. And now we have like some negative after effects, for instance, uh, in this uh, in, in this pre- um, precise regions. But at the same time, the what we need to understand about um, moods within Ukrainian society regarding these issues is that people are very uh, sensitive about any uh, any suspicious people, persons, link, having links uh, with Russia. Everything is verified, not just by security service or intelligence service of Ukraine. We have unprecedented professional, it's very important, objective work of non-governmental organizations identifying people with specific posts, specific uh, affiliation with uh, even sometime uh, public services and having some serious uh, links with Russia at the same time. They identify them, they collect all the data, made it public and actually bring everything as the ready case, ready for the trial and uh, all other um, um, following persecution pr- um, uh, pr- um, uh, procedures to to their uh, respective bodies. That's very important that tolerance uh, towards this kind of, um, let's say, citizenship, having dual citizenship with Russia is tolerance is zero when it comes to public servants, politicians, or just uh, businessmen. 
there is zero tolerance towards people having uh, any other um, political ties with Russia or even economic ties. And that's why I think maybe a bit later than it was needed to prevent some negative uh, developments. Uh, but at the same time, the work is being done very intensively, not just by uh, public institutions, but also by people who just support and back their investigation process, being in non-governmental sector, for instance, or being journalists, for instance. I think that you have the, the perfect point there, because it goes, we could essentially go two paths with the interview now. Let's select a little detour very quickly, because what you just highlighted is that the civil society is now taking up the role to, uh, of exposing the misdeeds, the uh, intransparencies, the um, collaboration, and bringing the cold light of day and shine it on a number of people, which has not always been the case before. I think it seems to me, at least, that my Ukrainian friends and colleagues all simply, now that everybody is fighting against this invasion, will not tolerate any kind of culture of infiltration and corruption in anymore when the Russian suppression and their efforts go away. This seems to bode well for a future of a civil society, doesn't it? Uh, first of all, we need to understand that uh, in Ukraine, uh, the civil society, meaning uh, not just organizations working um, as non-governmental institutions, but actually people, citizens, and communities as the real, as representing uh, the real nature of what civil society is. They have been so uh, zero tolerant towards corruption uh, uh, or some suspicious um, political or um, other types of ties with Russia since 2014. Of course, I couldn't say it was real for the overwhelming majority of the society uh, because there were still people, especially um, in the bordering with Russia regions like Luhansk region or Donetsk region, where people were uh, thinking about, let's say, some ties with, with Russia um, as, as those which can be brought to normality. Um, and that's why some connections with Russian media, Russian business, or Russian even political circles for certain groups within the society were still not the red line, but but something acceptable. As of and it, and, but let's say generally, Russia is not something which you should be. Uh, absolutely come if you have any affiliation with after 2014. And after the large-scale invasion, situation is almost equal all around the country. Because any ties, any work being done for, in the interest or directly for Russia or Russian actors, different ones, uh, is accepted as, as as something normal. It's absolutely unacceptable, uh, generally, 
uh, regardless if it is the west of Ukraine or the very east of Ukraine. And that is why, by the way, uh, during after these seven months of ongoing invasion, uh, we have the unprecedented situation when Ukrainians in all the regions in Ukraine uh, in the framework of face-to-face public opinion poll, which is representative for Ukrainian society, um, besides of um, occupied part of Kherson, um, Donbas, and Zaporizhia region, uh, they are thinking that after victory and after liberation of entire territory of Ukraine, Ukraine should break all the political and economic ties with Russia. Uh, and that is why, because people think uh, or about the future relations with Russia as about relations not between partner states, not between neighboring just states, but between two different systems where we don't need to look for closer relations. Uh, and having this in mind about indefinite future Of course, people will be much more uh, sensitive uh, and will react in a very painful way if it comes to some agents infiltrated into Ukrainian public uh, service system, for instance. And that's why uh, society is keen on idea to break ties and define people who work in the interest of Russia. And by the way... uh, Recently, Ukraine, not recently, but actually after large-scale invasion already, uh, Ukraine has made some amendments to Ukrainian legislation regarding collaboration and collaborators uh, and have amended the criminal code of Ukraine with stricter uh, persecution um, and penalties for being uh, involved in uh, collaboration with uh, occupational administrations or with Russia directly. and, uh, and, and that I, is a natural. It's a natural reaction, isn't it? That essentially, uh, in in such a moment, in such a moment, as a civil society, abs- you cannot absolutely. tolerate this. Absolutely, but uh, you know what? Uh, Ukrainian society has also um, uh, has o- was also going through different stages of uh, attitudes towards how we should react to people who are in favor or who were in favor of, for instance, uh, self-proclaimed republics and who helped them to emerge in 2014. Uh, And that is one of the main mistakes uh, of Ukrainian authorities uh, and of Ukrainian security service in 2014 and 15 was that those collaborators, in fact, for instance, people who helped to organize so-called referendum, fake referendum in May 2014 in uh, occupied at that time part of Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. Those people, only few of them were really persecuted and brought to their court. And that was a huge mistake that this real penalty and the real uh, persecution didn't happen in absolute majority of cases. Uh, On the one hand, there was uh, an overall frustration 
uh, of authorities at that time and everything was in unexpected way and that's why everything was everyone in Kyiv was trying to settle down the issue by political and diplomatic means and military force wasn't used in a proper way in order to tackle terrorists as terrorists when they captured, for instance, administrative buildings in Luhansk and Donetsk and captured uh, security service with uh, some weapons uh, there inside and started claiming that this is not Russian occupation, but this is so-called separatist movement. Uh, in Donetsk and in Luhansk. The reaction was much uh, slower and uh, much more diplomatic than actually was needed according to Ukrainian legislation at that time. And people who were in elect- so-called electoral commissions in, uh, in fake referendum uh, on May 11, 2014, they were, in most cases, they were not persecuted. Uh, and some of them became, uh, you know, uh, uh, they they tried to explain afterwards that uh, they were just you know ordinary people. They did uh, nothing against constitution and state. Really, didn't show that the rule of law should be prevailing. Uh, Why was that? that? Um, first of all, there was the political reason I have explained. So the authorities in Kiev, uh, as well as our partners abroad really didn't believe that Russia would really occupy Crimea and part of Donbas. Uh, and that's why the whole, the entire spring 2014, when uh, there was already a, um, uh, occupation of a number of districts in Luhansk and in Donetsk region at that time, the reaction of authorities was like, let's talk, uh, let's try to negotiate. Uh, let's not uh, send um, army there because army actually started moving uh, much later than uh, Ukrainian army started moving in the region much later than uh, the, the the buildings were captured. That Russia uh, started organizing uh, this so-called referendum when the whole cities were occupied. For instance, Slovyansk was fully occupied, uh, like from the very beginning. And uh, occupational administrations were declared. Uh, very famous uh, war criminal uh, Yirkin, uh, the former, and actually, it's not former. He's not former. Yeah. He's uh, yeah. we know we know Mr. Stratkov. Yes, uh, it it was the first reason. Uh, but the second reason was actually, uh, in my opinion, again political one. Why these people, these those collaborators, were not seriously persecuted? Because a uh, lot of people from local authorities directly or indirectly in 2014 uh, either participated in this collaboration or, uh, you know, were indirectly influencing uh, the the general process, trying to to be a side, but in fact, they were influencing the process. And those people were, you know, from local deputies sometimes mayors, uh, sometimes representatives of local administrations. And actually, uh, the central and regional and authorities were a bit frustrated because uh, they were afraid that in case we have unstable situation in Donbass, uh, in case we have already Russian uh, army and Russian forces there, we have armed people in the region, 
so they were trying i mean regional and central authorities they were trying to not to uh, to to make the conflict with other actors influ uh, influential actors in the region to make it more not to make it more visible and more tough let's say and that's why they were trying to negotiate with these people some of them became witness uh, started witnessing against uh, some other officials who were under the court some others uh, uh, were just playing uh, the local games uh, because they were they, they they were backed by by public support as for instance mayors and they uh, were trying to sell out let's say the stable situation in their small settlements or sometimes not small settlements uh, in exchange of uh, being not persecuted for direct or indirect help to uh, to for instance uh, organization of uh, this fake referendums at that time. And now this is a completely different situation. So all the lessons were drawn from, from that time. And now what I have been observing uh, from my sources, uh, from, from occupied territories, especially in Donbas, uh, to a less extent in other parts in Zaporizhia or in Kherson, it's a bit different situation there, but even in Luhansk and Donetsk provinces, collaborators from recently occupied territories, especially in Luhansk region, they know that they have just two ways right now in case of or actually when, as we hope, Ukrainian defense forces will liberate uh, Luhansk region. They have either to escape to Russia uh, or they will be put, uh, they will be brought to the trial. Uh, there will be no toleration of collaboration with with Russian uh, occupational forces, uh, but this, of course, this lesson was uh, is based on a very painful experience when, when these collaborators were not properly persecuted eight years ago. Yeah, key aspect: passivity uh, allows the, shall we say, the infliction of measures of uh, infiltration to go on. It's like if you allow a virus into your system, you don't fight it. And in this case, it then simply spreads. And I think what, what you've described about uh, Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast, a lot of people evidently have fallen prey to Russian propaganda with this massive media push over many years. And we've heard it even from those cities which were just within reach of this, Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, uh, where people constantly were being bombarded with Russian propaganda in addition to this, that, so that the general population would take in the Russian narrative, whilst the local pop, uh, politicians would therefore more easily fold. And then there were those who were actively collaborating. Now, recently, when the panic started, even in Luan's Oplas, uh, we've heard that many of those collaborators actually try to get their families into cars and try to get into Russia proper, but were held up at the border. It seems to be that treason doesn't pay off, does it? Uh, important detail. This year, there were only a couple of mayors or heads of uh, local administrations uh, who uh, betrayed, actually, Ukraine and uh, changed the side. I mean, uh, the current mayors or head of local administrations, not former officials like uh, Mr. Saldo, who represented no one 
before large-scale invasion and he was you know brought from nowhere uh, uh, again to to political scene uh, uh, but uh, from from among the the acting uh, officials, there were just couple uh, couple people, uh, both from all of all of the regions which were under Russian attack, like Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, um, to to betray their their real position. Uh, but but speaking about a temp of uh, some collaborators to to escape for instance that's 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 very important that they have no way uh, and, and no opportunities to escape anywhere actually this is the only way to to um, uh, to preserve their life or the life of their families but russia is not that kind of stupid when it comes to occupational administrations they don't need these people to to escape anywhere uh, and uh, what we see now that lots of these collaborators, especially in southern part of Ukraine, uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia region, are just um, you know, they, they, I don't know even how to say so. <laughs> they they are not. Uh, they, they were facing now. an ordeal. They didn't give up. <laughs> if you look at Ivan Fedorov, uh, the mayor of Melitopol, he was captured held in captivity, tortured, um, psychological pressure extended massively. And um, he, uh, there were attempts to force him to continue working under Russian occupation, and he defied them. Now, that is, that is civil engagement. This is uh, a significant commitment. This is not, not easy, let's put it this way. And he chose course, the right route. Of course, of course, it's not easy. But at the same time, um, there are dozens and hundreds of people who were without um, such a famous, uh, not not famous, who, who didn't become such such famous, you know, uh, heroes of uh, of ongoing situation. But of but they were they were brought to and they were tortured and now Ukraine is uh, getting from time to time getting uh, these tortured bodies in exchange of um, bodies of Russian soldiers uh, especially it, it, it is the case for Kherson region because Kherson um, Russia miscalculated with lots of things when it came to when it come to comes to large scale invasion against of Ukraine but Kherson is one of the biggest miscalculations of Russia because it's purely, purely Ukrainian, pro-Ukrainian, uh, culturally, socially, uh, from identity point of view region. And what we, what we know now from uh, intelligence work or from uh, expert network work, from local sources still staying on occupied territories of Kherson is that situation is absolutely not stable for occupational administrations exactly because they don't have loyalty and sympathy from local population. Yes, people stopped going to mass rallies uh, and stopped open protests like it was during the, the whole month after Kherson was occupied, so people didn't have any fear 
uh, in front of uh, armed uh, armed soldiers of uh, Russia. But at the same time, uh, it doesn't mean that, that, that you can make people cooperate, that you can make teachers uh, easily to start even the teaching process uh, in the schools. Uh, and uh, it means that um, there are lots of people gathering information, bringing it to intelligence service of Ukraine, organizing some sabotage uh, operations. So, and that is why, in my opinion, uh, that was one of the reasons why uh, in Kherson region, uh, Russia was trying to organize this fake referendum for many times, but ended up with this decision. Uh, only now, when other factors appeared and triggered this rapid decision. But we are safe to assume, I think, uh, and we will agree quite easily, that the rapid decision currently is done in view of different objectives, targets, and it's panicky, it's irrelevant, it's unacceptable anyway, and it doesn't change one thing, that is the resolve of both the occupied population, especially in Kherson, as you quite rightly say, and of course, the fighting force coming to free the city. Yes. Um, this, this decision is uh, not something, uh, was not something unpredictable or unexpected for Ukrainian side and actually for uh, for people working with, with this conflict. Uh, but, uh, of course, it, it was and it is explained why it was so rapidly uh, and so quickly made this decision and why it is going to be implemented like these days. Uh, there was the general idea, in my opinion, the general idea of Russia tactically right now is to fix somehow that these territories belong to Russian Federation politically. Because militarily, Russia is under the real perspective and under the real risk to lose control over these territories, like Russia has rapidly lost the control over Kharkiv region as a result of super efficient counteroffensive on the side of Ukraine defense forces. Uh, and that's why in order to try to prevent somehow or to create the picture that there is a ground to prevent Ukrainian army to move forward with the occupation of these territories is to declare that they are annexed by Russian Federation. This is the political, let's say, tactical idea. Uh, secondly, it's also political idea why it, this decision was taken now. Uh, technically, Russia needs some time to regroup uh, to find some human resources to continue with its offensive in Ukraine. And Russia needs at least a couple of months, at least a couple of months to do that. And for that precise uh, reason, they need some, let's say, decrease of military activities on the ground. Russia is fully slowed down with its offensive in Donetsk region. They don't move anywhere. They just shell, erase the city like Bakhmut, but at the same time, they do not move. Moreover, they have lost two important cities like Liman and Svetohirsk recently as a part of, let's say, Kharkiv-related counteroffensive. That's why any kind of activity on the ground right now is mainly related to counteroffensive of Ukrainian forces. 
slowly but still very well planned and uh, uh, straightforward in her son region and uh, which is most risky for Russian Federation, the co- probable counteroffensive in Luhansk province. And that's why they need to somehow freezen the situation on the ground before Russia will try to found several other dozens of thousands of soldiers mobilized in the framework, for instance, of this partial, so-called partial mobilization in Russia. They need some time to regroup, to bring new people. And uh, after that, Russia will use another argument, uh, which is partially political, partially military. As soon as they annex these territories, they can easily declare that they have either uh, that they have either replaced already nuclear weapons on some of these occupied territories, or that they can do that. Uh, and this also serves for the political reason to make Ukraine. Uh, stop with even thinking about counteroffensive and to influence the position of Western allies of Ukraine to make them think that Russia will use nuclear weapons in that or in that way in case they will try to restore Ukraine's control and to help Ukraine to restore control over these territories. That's why this decision was not unexpected, but uh, the very moment is explained exactly by specific counteroffensive operation which is being uh, conducted on the ground by Ukraine. It was triggered by that. Uh, I'm originally from... Yeah, we, we don't region. disagree, Maria. We don't disagree. Uh, We've yeah. actually discussed exactly this point also yesterday in the evening with uh, General Pekka Tovari, the former head of mm-hmm. military intelligence of the Finnish armed forces, as well as more recently with Ben Hodges. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, completely agree with this, that um, these are reactive measures by the Russian side. And they're predictable to an extent, which also showcases how clever the uh, military strategy of uh, what the Russians often call the AFU, but ZSU actually is. And Solution's general staff has done tremendous, tremendous good for the Ukrainian cause by framing, shaping the enemy, pushing them, and leaving the Russians very few options left. So what you've been highlighting is that essentially they feel compelled to react politically because they can't win militarily. And when they do so politically, they expose their weakness even further. Because nobody in Russia can create a strong, modern, combined armed forces army in such a time frame. They haven't done it in the last 12 years. They won't be able to do it now in three, five or nine months. Uh Exactly, uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the real uh, calculation uh, which Russia counts on with these political instruments, uh, they also will fail, in my opinion, because the logic which is being used by Russia with with this, you know, political attempts to to fix their control over these territories, um, it is based on previous experience with annexation of Crimea or um, part of Ukrainian Donbas in 2014, when this blackmailing that this is our territory, don't uh, don't try to restore your control over it, it 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 partially worked because Ukraine and and its Western allies were dragged into political negotiations for eight years about possible reintegration of these territories. And Ukraine was trying to find different ways how to this old Normandy talks 
mistrilateral contact group. And Russia thinks that the same blackmailing scheme, uh, like they will announce this is our territory and no one will invade there, uh, this will work. It, it will work, but it will not exactly because this is not 2014. And as of now, Ukraine is fully supported by at least strategic allies of Ukraine in its intention not to start negotiations until there is the real perspective they will be they will be constructive and the understanding of constructive negotiations is very simple now it's about withdrawal of russian forces if they do not want to speak about that uh, or discuss it uh, diplomatically then it will be done militarily uh, and that's that's the case right now that Russia will mis- is miscalculated with this Absolutely. political blackmailing. Yeah, I think you have the right point there. And we discussed it here also with a friend of, of the space, Peter Doran, who is currently amongst our listeners in the past, is that Ukraine very deliberately, very carefully and very methodically is pushing forward with its own capacity. Yes, well supported by a global coalition of the willing, not always as supported as it would like, and as I would like, personally, and if it were up to me, trust me, we can talk about having 250 Leopard 2s being committed by at least 19 nations if Olaf Scholz were to release them. And I'm quite sure that our very capable friends in the Ukrainian armed forces would be able to man them and drive home, meaning drive home to free Luhansk mm-hmm. and drive home to free Donetsk and drive home to make sure that the last thing these tanks see is the ramp to the Kerch Bridge. We're not quite there yet. The French may do a few things in the coming days. Um, The rumours from Washington are good as to M1 Abrams. Let's hope that it comes. But in the meantime, it is all due to the Ukrainian armed forces having achieved this because they are actually executing it on the ground. And what you've been highlighting quite literally is that the population in the occupied territories now has a choice. Those who have been living under occupation for long obviously had a harsh life. Some of them have collaborated. How do you think that will change uh, the perception by the Russian armed forces and those who have collaborated when is the breaking point? When does the panic, which we've seen now a couple of times on Crimea after the strikes on Saki, mm-hmm. in the area of Luhansk and Donetsk, as well as in the whole oblast, when the forces in the Kharkiv oblast came under fire heavily and both were forced to retreat as well as to flee, a lot of people moved out very quickly. At the same time, we can see that there's a lot of Russian troops who are uh, moving their families back out from Melitopol. Mm-hmm. So the panic is already setting. When, at what point in time, do you see various people uprising heavily against the occupation? How, how far is that in the future? Um, on the one hand... I wouldn't expect that there will be, uh, let's say, very visible, huge uprising uh, against occupation. 
I think that the oppression which Russia is being made on the local population is so severe, and we have we have witnesses from um, uh, from the occupied territories. We have real facts proving that that people they can participate uh, in indirect or sometimes direct if it is about sabotage. Uh, um, processes or activities against Russian occupational forces, but at the same time, I wouldn't expect that uh, we, we we will definitely see, let's say, some, um, I don't know, protest or mass rallies, but at the same time, there is a reason or there is a trigger which is most probably will make the position of occupational forces as unstable as it is just possible in uh, under current circumstances. This is about this general mobilization on recently occupied territories in Luhansk and in Donetsk region, because these territories are number one in a row to be fully mobilized. We know that the general force of mobilization uh, is being conducted on the, that part of Donbas, which was occupied in 2014. So far, Russia didn't start the same mirroring like uh, general mobilization on recently occupied part of Luhansk region, for instance. There were just separate cases, uh, I know about them, when when people were mobilized, but it was uh, more individual cases like, uh, uh, like personal, uh, you know, uh, personal processes between people when when someone was uh, trying to to bring to prison or sent uh, to the army those who are considered to be personal enemies or they found some people whom they thought they were uh, suspicious or had some links with uh, let's say pro ukrainian activities but general mobilization hasn't started yet in recently occupied part of luhansk province but technically, it has been prepared for a long time. And people in those communities who stayed there, even if they are against, or I would say, even if they are not loyal to occupational forces, they know that they are the next. And they, now, they are now thinking what to do, because the only way out in this situation is just to change the place of living uh, and simply physically hide because it's not possible anymore for men to leave the region. In February and in March, it was still possible using bribes, some corruption schemes, when, when there were some drivers who, uh, who, who helped uh, these men leave uh, the occupied part of Donbass to Russia, for instance, or even uh, further. But uh, now it's not possible anymore at all. So the only thing is just to, to change your apartment, uh, to make no one know where you are, not to use mobile, uh, local mobile phone, uh, which is uh, operated by local operators in Luhansk and Tendanes. So local authorities have full access uh, to this information and mobile signals. So, and that's the scheme which is being used by men who are threatened by, by, by this perspective and this might trigger this not necessarily will will uh, 
uh, leads to some huge mass rallies because this is authoritarian, even totalitarian regime. It's mu- it is much stricter. We have to understand it. It's much stricter than uh, we can imagine about Russia itself. Uh, and, and people are really pressed and they're really afraid, uh, but it might trigger uh, dissatisfaction up to the level that local occupational authorities will feel that they have unstable situation, they don't have any support, they have not supporters and adherents, but but actually enemies in front of them among local people. And it will be it will take place because people don't want to fight. What Russian occupation forces say to um, to, to 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 other citizens in in Luhansk province, for instance, we have liberated we have liberated you. So now it's your turn to fight for for the rest of uh, Ukraine. Uh, and that's why <coughs> to join, to access that to Russia. And of course, this is not what is in mind of people living uh, in the area. No one, uh, no one is going to fight. And this might, might, might bring some, uh, some serious processes against occupational forces. But collaborators will escape as soon as there will be first steps, first steps of Ukrainian army in Luhansk region. And we have seen that already because when Ukrainian defense forces were approaching the border with Luhansk province, what Russians and Russian collaborators did, they withdraw from all the towns and settlements in the northern part of Luhansk region like Kremina, Svatova, and even in some in the northwestern part of Luhansk provinces, provinces exactly. like Sarobilsk. Exactly. Uh, I, it's very good that you highlight this because we, we had this discussion here on the space. In those days when this massive panicky retreat occurred, uh, we saw very quickly that troops uh, withdrew from Kremlin and uh, Satova was essentially nothing else than a way station. Russian troops passed through it, occupying administration officials, ran, went into their cars and drove either north or to Starobilsk and onwards, but definitely not staying. So yes. the, the, the clear understanding on their side is already there. So when Ukraine is unable to press the advantage, these people will leave. The question is, what happens to everybody else there? One issue which has come up, and many questions in that regard have been fused already here on the space. What happens to those who haven't collaborated mm-hmm. in as much, but who have stayed on site. For example, let's, let's take those who, since the occupation um, of those territories after 2014, have grown up to become, let's say, 18 or 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. Young men who couldn't run away, who may have had their families there, who mm-hmm. have grown up and now have been press-ganged into becoming cannon fodder. They are in units where they're told, you take this Mosanagar and you go there and you shoot at the enemy, which is absolutely crazy. It's another form of genocide, forcing people to shoot on their own mm-hmm. just because they're young and they can't change. How do you think Ukraine as a nation will be able to treat those young men and also women who've been forced into that service at such a young age after the war. Ukraine will win. 
I don't, I don't, there's no doubt, but the question is, those who remain, who have not been killed, who've been taken in as prisoners, and they're 18, 19, 20, and they have not volunteered for it, but since about April, they were forced, and with Wagner troops or Chechens behind them, mm -hmm. were pushed forward. What should Ukraine do? Um, Ukraine is not a unique case when it comes to... Uh, uh, to international military conflicts when the invading state is using some of the locals to fight against actually their uh, uh, their com compatriots um, uh, and other citizens of the same state. So the very first idea which came to my mind to reply is that we shouldn't uh, expect that there will be the general scheme how to react to all to all this group, uh, action, to, to the actions of this, let's say, general group. There will be individual cases anyway, both from legal point of view, because there is a difference. If, for instance, uh, there is a difference between soldiers who were, uh, who were, uh, let, let's say, uh, video recorded. Recruited and trained and those who were put in, into service. Um, there, there is a difference not just we don't know whether the person was voluntarily or forcefully uh, recruited actually any recruitment any conscription is directly forbidden by one of Geneva conventions uh, because it's treated that as uh, um, even propaganda to make people uh, be conscripted be mobilized is is directly prohibited by one of the provisions of uh, Geneva Conventions when it comes to civilians living on occupied territories. So, but we don't know, let's say, uh, if it was forceful or if it was uh, voluntary uh, from certain person to, to become a soldier of Russian army, uh, unoccupied part of Ukraine. But at the same time, there is a big difference. What is, what is going on next? Uh, if the, the specific person, for instance, is famous, I would say very in a very simple way, on TikTok or on, I don't know, Facebook or whatever, on Telegram, uh, records the video how he fights, uh, I will not repeat how they name Ukrainians, and so on, and then he is in a captivity. So this person is absolutely obvious not a victim and will not be treated as a victim of Russian propaganda or of Russian forceful mobilization or whatever. But at the same time, there are, there are ordinary citizens, there are ordinary men who were forcefully brought, they do not support it. Uh, and they are, for instance, uh, uh, they found themselves in a captivity at some moment and they want to cut the rate and they say directly that they were forcefully. And there is no signs that this person was you know happy from uh, from from participating in the warfare against uh, Ukrainian defense forces, and there will be a different individual case, I would say. So it's a long story. It, it's a, it's a complicated story, but the legal framework right now is that from Ukrainian side there is a message, legally based message. If you can go to the captivity. Ukraine has organized the specific, uh, the specific uh, procedure and specific hotlines even to get information how to do that. 
for Russian soldiers and for uh, forcefully mobilized Ukrainian citizens in occupied territories. Now this is being done among citizens of, in Crimea and in occupied Donbas, not yet in Kherson and in Zaporizhia, but it will take place as well. In case you cannot, then try to omit this mobilization at any price. Hide, escape, cut all your ties, because the real perspective to be killed at the very first week of participation in a warfare is more than 50%, I would say. Exactly because these people are used as the unskilled cannon folder by Russian forces. They are going and throwing on the front line first. Um, and But legally, legally, uh, according to international humanitarian law, according to Ukrainian legislation, uh, what Russia is doing with our men by forcefully by forceful mobilization is violation of the law against uh, is the is the criminal um, um, is the criminal activity against civilians, and Ukraine has the legal framework. It's not perfect. It, it, it still needs to be developed, but generally you can count uh, on let's say, investigation and that you will not be treated as uh, as the person, you know, um, as the Russian soldier, let's say, if if there are no signs that you were doing this uh, voluntarily, happily, and that you supported it. The same story, by the way, with fake referendums. It's very important. I was, uh, these days, when I was giving... Uh, comments and uh, interviews to uh, to local Ukrainian medias. Uh, I know that that people in occupied territories are following uh, what what we have been saying. Uh, one of my messages was uh, that try to omit uh, not only I don't speak about collaborators who will organize these fake referendums on the level of uh, any settlement. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking about people, ordinary citizens who is might go just to vote, you know, uh, try to omit it at any price, lay down at home, like being completely ill or whatever, try to omit it. But even if you feel that you, ha you are under pressure, you are forced and that's the real case on occupied territories and you have to go and, you know, be, become, you know, part of the crowd. Um, uh, this will be very hard, wanted money, um, but um, the private currently, or the corporal, if there is such one, in that occupied territories, in these forces, they will have very few options and they may not have enough communication. Yes, Ukrainian uh, armed forces and their Serbs are trying to reach out to them. I understand this, and the hotline is open, and some Russian soldiers and some uh, soldiers from, or let's say militants, from the occupied territories have used that opportunity. It hasn't quite spread yet, because the numbers, from what we've seen, are still relatively small. It, this is one of the more difficult pathways in the future, because... Ukraine will have to reintegrate a lot of young people who have grown into this conflict. That's why I asked the initial question between 2014 and 2022. Under occupation, there are many, many people who had 
absolutely no chance of developing their own independent opinion. Um, I would. Uh, I um. I have been I have been uh, analyzing and working with uh, uh, public opinion in uh, in Donbas sometimes, uh, including occupied Donbas, but generally front line uh, during all these years. Uh, and I'm originally from the region, so if I may, I, know, I that's why I'm asking uh, you. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so. I I I I would be um, brave to pretend to to feel the the very nerve, let's say, of uh, of local moods. And in my opinion, there is one very important peculiarity of public moods in Donbas, which I believe hasn't changed in occupied part of Donbas after 2014, or didn't change significantly. And this peculiarity. I will explain what is it now. Generally, this peculiarity was always a problem for Ukraine and for, let's say, uh, for relations between uh, some some groups within the region. It, it, it was a problem before 2014. So what was that? That was rather passive when it comes to civil engagement, civic engagement, when it comes to uh, some, you know, civic, civil, uh, civil activity, uh, the general atmosphere is like uh, we expected, I mean, generally people in the region, the, the, the largest share of local population was simply counting on social and economic welfare and did care much less about influencing community life, participating in civil uh, processes within the society, controlling authorities, whatever. And before 2014, that created a problem for Ukraine. Of course, it was not a catastrophe, let's say, but it was visible that that large amount of people is rather passive, is rather passive. That's why uh, in case they have stable income, uh, which is not necessarily uh, enough, proper, or high, but still this kind of stability, and they are fine with that. And in 2014, in my opinion, and basing on, on the real numbers of number of public opinion polls, that was the main share of local population with this, uh, with this position that we are staying aside uh, from what is going on between Russia and Ukraine, we are, uh, and, and that's why Russia succeeded with creating this propagandist, propagandist picture that they were, that the whole region was separatist because absolute majority of the people was pro-Ukrainian, but they were so passive to go out to protest, to participate in the mass rallies that they were simply invisible. And they didn't have enough uh, experience of being socially um, active. All the protests which ever happened in Donbas in the times of independent Ukraine were related to economics and social welfare. For instance, when people didn't receive salaries for a long time in 90s or even after 2000. 
and when it comes to some identity or political issues, despite being absolutely against a, um, a separation from Ukraine and accession to the Russian Federation, it was a crazy idea which was not supported by locals. There was a huge, there was a, an absolute minority with about 15-18% who really wanted in May 2000, not in May, in February and in March 2014, to separate somehow from Ukraine and either to get more independence from the central authorities or to uh, join Russian Federation, but it's absolute majority. But they became like the face of Donbas and of Russian propaganda about Donbas exactly because the largest share of local population preferred to keep silent at the critical moment. And it was always a problem. But in my opinion, this pass, rather passive atmosphere will allow, and this orientation on social and economic welfare and predictability and stability will allow Ukraine, once these territories are liberated, to settle down the issues, to show people that they have the future, that Ukraine is organizing and restoring the region regardless of what happened before that criminals will be really persecuted. But the local population who was just surviving and living, despite what opinion they did have during these years, they will be treated as normal citizens of Ukraine. And that strategy, in my opinion, uh, will work exactly because people will be ready to accept you know, this change of political reality from current let's say, Russian-related occupational reality, uh, which is uh, being present for um, at least 30% of Donbass uh, since 2014. Yeah, and the level of violence. Maria, if I may highlight, the level of violence, you were just highlighting that the strategy can work because first, as you said, the passivity of the population, what I would call an orphan child, from Soviet times where dependency and therefore the predictability of base income was still a key issue and that continued in certain areas of Donbass which didn't migrate to the, shall we say, new Ukraine quite easily. But the key aspect is to provide security, comfort, but also a welcoming attitude to say, we're here to solve it. We're here to address the issue. I think Ukraine is doing the right things in that regard. The the offer is already there, and we understand from your ministry and the people in charge of the effort that they're planning for exactly that already. Because the torture, on the other hand, people have now experienced suppression, violence, torture, rape, the likes, on a continuous basis for many, many years. And there's many people like you from the region who evidently would like to at least come back home in some shape or form. And they have lived abroad or outside of Luhansk Oblast, outside of Donetsk Oblast. There is a change coming, isn't there? Um, I, I, I believe in that. And I have absolutely no doubts that Ukraine will be will have, of course, difficulties like any country reintegrating uh, uh, previously occupied territories, but uh, Ukraine is uh, Ukrainian society is very adaptive one, and one of the key um, factors which 
I believe will allow Ukraine to integrate, reintegrate these territories, even despite the level of violence and the scope of violence, which is now uh, being enlarged between, um, let's say, people um, in occupied territories and also like um, Russia, um, um, keeping these people under their control on the one hand and Ukraine on the other hand. Uh, one key factor which will allow us to overcome this issue over years, of course, is that Ukrainian authority, Ukrainian citizens on Ukraine-controlled territories up to 2014 and up to a uh, large-scale invasion didn't treat uh, people in occupied part of Donbass as betrayers, uh, but mainly as hostages of either circumstances or uh, occupational administrations. That's very important that horizontally, socially, there was no violence, there was no hostile, uh, uh, aggressive attitude towards ordinary citizens uh, uh, behind the front line. Um, and in all the in all their polls, uh, nationwide, regional, uh, we have shown the stable tendency during all these eight years. When it came to political negotiations and compromises or even concessions to Russia or to self-proclaimed republics in Donbas, people in their absolute majority in Ukraine-controlled territory of Donbas and nationwide in Ukraine were against these compromises. Absolute majority was always against during all these eight years. But when it came to defining how, what should be the policy of Ukrainian state towards ordinary citizens living behind their front line in occupied part of the Donbas, so people were we're having another uh, opinion. So Ukraine should be open. Ukraine should fulfill its social and humanitarian um, uh, obligations uh, for, for these people, should pay pensions, social payments, should allow uh, specific procedures for, for children uh, to, to study in Ukrainian universities or schools, just not to... Um, not, not, not to lose the links. And of course, the ongoing large-scale invasion will uh, complicate, is complicating and will complicate uh, the situation more seriously. But still, um, I don't see even now in Ukraine that, uh, that there is some uh, aggression against local people. So there is a division. There is a division between collaborators uh, on the one hand, and uh, those who who are militaries, who are fighting and who are torturing Ukrainian people under the Russian flag, even if these people are Ukrainians in occupied part of the Donbas. Of course, there are Ukrainians working in the camps, in the prisons, fighting in the army, in the army. But at the same time, there is a big difference between those people who do it consciously openly and this is really their position and uh, ordinary people who are just trying to survive 
like they are trying to survive now in Kherson or in Zaporizhia or tried to survive in Izum, which is now discussed again by the entire world when we discover all the war, war crimes conducted by Russia there in the times of occupation. Now, just imagine if all the things which we've read about Isolatia repeat themselves all across Kherson, all across the remainder of Mariupol, Melitopol, and all the other places. We have thought in recent days, Maria, that um, the atrocities evident in Izium, in Balaklea, and in the villages, all of Kharkiv Oblast, would shock the Western world and move the politicians to think. As terrifying as that is, that it requires that shock. But even that failed to happen because Western media to another extent, could not bring itself to show what happened. Some media even said, these images are so terrible, we can't show them. Now, that's <laughs> harsh. That is really, really the opposite of what you would, what needs happening. But how do you see that from a Ukrainian perspective? You, you experience it in the country. How do you see it? Um. I, I think it's logical that uh, psychologically the audience started perceiving cruel and terrifying things uh, much, let's say, in a, in a less sensitive way than it was when it happened for the first time. Unfortunately, this is the logic of any conflict. So in order to uh, to create another earthquake uh, in public opinion abroad, you need, unfortunately, some developments which will uh, be much larger in terms of their terrifying effect than everything which happened before. So, of course, it's I can say that this is unfair, that this is not adequate, um, under current circumstances that world and media were reacting less seriously to what is being found in the Zoom than, for instance, to the findings, these terrible findings uh, back in March and April in northern part of uh, Kiev and Chernihiv region, for instance. But it's, it's I can explain it from conflict studies point of view, from psychological development of the conflict, it's fully, uh, you know, predictable. But what is very important right now is not only that Ukraine should, uh, should continue its efforts to spread the information about these war crimes, regardless of these, uh, let's say, disadvantages uh, with... Uh, uh, with some kind of getting used to, to bad news about war crimes. Uh, but, you, but one of the most important tasks for Ukraine, and I think we, we are very effective in terms of fulfilling this task, is to make fixing, investigating, uh, and um, documenting all these crimes on international level with involvement of as many um, um, 
actors as possible uh, to make it technical uh, and fully uh, appropriate for the for the future um, uh, for the future trials, international trials to to bring everything to the to the to different international courts because there will be no just one court responsible for for all the war crimes or crimes against humanity. Um, and that's why uh, this bilateral work, which is being done with several dozens of states, uh, mainly from the European continent, which are sending their investigators and official representatives of their police and uh, um, other investigator bodies to Ukraine, uh, it creates this scheme. United Nations is, of course, as an umbrella, which also needs to enlarge its mission. And by the way, I haven't heard so far about the decision to enlarge uh, already uh, already existing mission of uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council uh, to investigate the crimes in Kharkiv region. I haven't heard uh, if they... If they I think you can it. wait a little while for that, Maria. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as always. Yes. As they always, have, they yes. have other more important things to do, you know. Exactly, but at the same time, what is uh, exactly for that reason? It's so important that national states are sending their uh, officially uh, entitled for this purpose groups. Uh, it's not just to keep. Uh, on the one hand, it will help us to keep attention in these states about. Uh, their work in Ukraine because anyway it will penetrate into informational space of France, Lithuania, Germany, whatever. Uh, but secondly, what is very important is that absolute majority of war crimes, um, these are the crimes of so-called general jurisdiction. It means that any state which uh, participates uh, somehow, but officially, of course, participates uh, in investigation and documenting of the crime can be the state where not only uh, where these criminals can not only be arrested, but persecuted as well. It means that even if we imagine that somehow uh, the regime in Russia will change. Uh, some when relations between Russia and, let's say, collective West will start uh, uh, being warmer. But all these war criminals will be fully closed in their country. Probably in in couple of others open for them, they will be able to to move to and from. But all the countries now participating in investigation together with Ukraine of all these war crimes, they will be legally uh, capable and uh, allowed uh, to arrest, persecute and bring to the trial all these war criminals. Uh, and it, it's like an instrument which Ukraine started uh, in March under the umbrella of International Criminal Court uh, and need to to keep it uh, intensively developed, let's say, because unfortunately, there will be lots of more uh, Izum uh, and and Buchas in, in occupied territories. No, uh, I completely agree. We had the discussion here with a number of uh, lawyers in this field um, who all uh, say that it has to have a, a multi-pronged 
approach that Ukraine reaches out to individual nation states who then can actually can mm-hmm. uh, say highlight that this is a genocide and prosecute it. The U.S. has a, um, what I would call extraterritorial um, approaches in that regard and can prosecute it. There's other states just as well. Um, there's a number of crimes in that regard which can and will be brought to justice. But then again, that is ex post mm-hmm. after the fact. As much yes. and as relevant as it is for the continuity of a culture and the rule of law, uh, which shall be upheld in Ukraine, at the same time we're also looking at how it can, how more of these crimes can be prevented in future. And it seems evident that there is only one solution. And we've been preaching this here from the beginning. I, I think you will agree that it can only be the methodical well-planned, resilient, and well-executed strategy vested in the Ukrainian armed forces liberating uh, your country. Because there's Um, no way other than winning. Exactly. Exactly. And um, fortunately for Ukraine, uh, none of uh, our allies... Uh, none of our strategic allies. We have different groups of allies, but uh, those who are really strategic uh, for us right now, none of them is uh, blaming Ukraine for being, you know, not willing to negotiate. That's very important. Uh, I always stress that, that at least during next five, six months, Ukraine has a full green light to fight with with proved and uh, uh, secured support, military, financial, and economic support from our allies to liberate our territories, to plan the next operations, uh, and to get uh, the needed amount not needed actually we don't have needed amount of uh, weapons but, but 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 still to have let's say increasing permanently increasing maybe not rapidly increasing but incrementally increasing number of needed uh, for ukrainian fight weapons uh, and, and that's very important to to understand because in 5 6 months there will be or there might be some new variables uh, in international arena, there will be some results of internal domestic processes in Russia, and of course, the warfare itself will 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 show which scenario uh, is going to prevail uh, for 2023. But generally, it's very important that Ukraine has only one strategy to deoccupy the territory. Uh, entire territory that there is absolutely no readiness neither when it comes to uh, Ukrainian authorities nor when it comes to Ukrainian society to concede or to compromise about you know selling out or giving some territories to Russia in order to create an illusion that we stop uh, the large conflict at the price of uh, refusing from some of our territories. This is absolutely an acceptable scenario. And Russia has fully, really, from public opinion point of view, Russia has fully uh, has made it upside down, actually, because 
before large-scale invasion, Ukrainians were absolutely against compromises with Russia about Donbas or about Crimea. But at the same time, society has at that time used to live with this reality that part of the territory is occupied and some political negotiations about possible reintegration of these territories are permanently going on or were permanently going on. But as soon as Russia invaded, the question was really changed absolutely for Ukrainians. So uh, they stated that no, no negotiations. We need just to liberate, deoccupy the entire territory and Russia will lose it all. Sooner or later, but we'll lose it all, including Crimea and uh, previously occupied part of Donbass. And uh, with this uh, <laughs> expert and uh, also personal uh, <laughs> summing up, um, I, I can take a couple more questions, but generally I think I need to finish. <laughs> Maria, you shouldn't. You should come back on a regular basis because the reason why, for example, my colleague Victoria and Victoria, Felin and Victoria, you can see here on the panel, have not been peppering you with more questions. It was great to listen to you because you laid it out so plainly, so clearly, and you are so consistent with what we have been discussing on this space. We fully support what the argument, uh, we see it and we agree with most of this. I know it's boring. We would have loved to, you know, ang uh, say tease you a little here and there, but there was no reason for it. It makes sense to us. And you're not the only one who is from Luhansk here on this panel. Uh, the other Victoria is as well. And um, yeah. by the way, she passes her best regards, as you know. Um, it's a key thing that that region is freed soon enough. But you know who has been freed in the last hour just as well? No. Katarina Polishchuk mm -hmm. from Azovstal. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. It came out at 10.47, like about Seri uh, uh, Stelenko just posted it whilst mm -hmm. you and I were talking here. And uh, people are going nuts about it, of course, because at the same time, under, uh, in uh, Hazan Ajlan has been freed and the Moroccan has been freed and um, seemingly the Saudis have paid a bit of money, uh, sorry, have uh, made their influence um, uh, felt, but uh, that she has been freed is obviously quite fantastic. We're extremely mm -hmm. happy. Yes. Uh, by, the, by the way, uh, it's, it's when it comes to our uh, people, our uh, prisoners of war, who are in a Russian captivity. Um, you know, um, when I talk to, to, to some relatives, um, they, 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 they really, like from personal point of view, um, they, they really feel that uh, world uh, stopped thinking about, about their relatives, about Azov, especially after that uh, tragedy in Olenivka when, when, when at least 55 people were killed. Uh, as we understand absolutely consciously and precisely, um, this such an open and um, pre-planned like mass killing of uh, of Ukrainian Poles. Um, and for me, well, we talked about like international reaction or media reaction to to the war crimes discovered in Izum, for instance. 
but there is another problem that media are less interested right now to write about uh, people who are still alive, but in absolutely inappropriate conditions uh, under the ongoing under the permanent threat for their health and life, um, and and of course this is the task number one to to make these people free. You're absolutely right, and you will be happy to hear then that Daria Sikunova was on mm-hmm. our space on the 1st of August mm-hmm. for one and a half hours, and we tried to make sure that her voice uh, would be heard. Unfortunately, we understand her boyfriend um, has not been yet identified amongst those who have been free today. Mm-hmm. Um, but one shall not give up hope. Okay, thank you. It was nice to be with you, Hope. Uh, or actually, I think I will... I will join if I if I can in the future. Maria, whenever you have time, the space is online since the 23rd mm-hmm. of February. We haven't gone away and we won't unless and until Ukraine is free from any Russian occupation. So we will be around. We'll always be uh, pleased to be a home for every Ukrainian voice and we'd like to have you here whenever you have time. Drop by. Good. We'll be there. Good. <laughs> Good. Have a nice evening or day. <laughs> um, it has been a pleasure. Keep in touch. Thank you very much. Good. Thank Jaku. you. Thank you. Bye bye.